Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Daniel Fuss <laughs> joins us from Luma Sales, their vice chairman, and truly someone who invented the modern bond business. Dan Fuss, you are the one that told us to forget about yield by depressed price bonds. There will be credit improvement and the bonds will appreciate for total return. You can't do that anymore, can you? Well, um, that's right. <laughs> but all I can do is agree with what you just said, Tom. Um, it's a tough road to hold right now in the, the bond world. Uh, you can make some money. You can ride the yield curve at the short end. Um, mm -hmm. I don't recommend it, but you, you can uh, buy a, a slice of each of the new high yield uh, coming out, and you've got uh, some yield. Uh, or you can be a bit smarter about it, and you can say, well, I'm not going to buy a slice of each one of them, but I'm, I'm going to buy the ones I like and try to keep my uh, maturities in fairly short. And then people say to me, and they say, well, that's all well and good, Dan, but, you know, our discount rate is 7. The yield in the portfolio is 3.5. And, and so what do you expect us to do about this? Uh, get rid of you? And I said, well, I don't like you to get rid of me. But uh, I have to be honest with you and, and tell you, it's that type of yield environment. And uh, so if you're discounting at 7 uh, and the yields you're getting are 3, uh, or four even, uh, you've got a problem. And I can't solve that one for you. Uh, now, last year we were lucky. Uh, prices went uh, up some more. The total return looks nice. And people say, gee, that's really very nice. You, you've done it again. And they say, uh-huh. Listen, that was luck. And by this time, uh, you know, the marketers will never let you in another meeting. But uh, that's the reality of life. Dan, I want to jump in if that's okay, sir. I want to talk about the experience through the last few cycles, beyond just what we've gone through in the last 12 months, but over the last couple of decades. What is it about the way we recover and roll over through these cycles that leads to lower highs on a 10-year bond yield and lower lows each and every time, each and every time? What's going on, Dan? What's that dynamic? And do we repeat that in this recovery we're about to go through as well? Uh, well, number one, I don't know the future. Uh, number two... Um, I, I think what we're in right now, Jonathan, is in a period of uh, rather low rates for quite a period of time. Now, I am not in the camp that say they are down, they're going to stay down in the U.S. And I don't think we're going through the popular phrase these days, the Japanification uh, of, of uh, you know, inflation and the markets. I, I, I don't buy that. And uh, but maybe it'll happen. I doubt it. That's a whole different world there. Uh, I think what we're in right now is an excess of liquidity finding its way into the bond market. Now, there are a couple indicators. If you look at uh, what's happening with the ETFs, for example, you'll look at and you'll say, oh, cheapers, uh, the high yield ETFs. Uh, they're not really growing anymore. As a matter of fact, they seem, as reported, to have flattened out. 
Now, uh, that's one indication. Then you look at what the new uh, issues coming out are being used for. Uh, A good chunk of them are being used to refinance the older ones. You're bringing down your coupons to adjust to the, you know, that's smart financial management. Uh, And uh, the underlying fundamentals on a lot of the issuers, on some, are are quite good. On many more, uh, they're deteriorating. And uh, so here you have a a sloppier credit environment. You have lower yields. Yeah. And and basically, this goes to the point that you made recently, Dan, in an interview with Bloomberg News, where you said there's no outstanding value in the fixed income markets. And I'm wondering, Dan, as one of the fathers of the bond market as we know it today, where do you go if there is no outstanding value in the fixed income market? Well, you you do what you did. Uh, I, I'm going to go back in history. You do what you did at a little different level of, of yields. Uh, in the 60s, you start to work with the yield curve, and and you're patient. But uh, it's easier to see in munis. If you were running a muni portfolio, you'd say, oh, good, I'm going to buy the five-year, and I'm going to roll it back out after two years have gone by or three years, whatever. That was a pretty steady positive curve. Corporates are, are different, and there's a spread between bid and ask. But if you stick to a higher quality and work with the yield curve, you can be adding some value. Not a lot. And then you watch for the occasional anomaly. Anomaly. Um, and uh, on the credit side. And they do come along. Not many and not big. And they don't last long. Uh, but you can find them. But the one thing I discourage people from doing is saying, well, listen, uh, this economic rebound is going to be ferocious, and everything is going to be back to normal. Well, maybe that will happen. I hope so. I yeah. sure hope so. But I wouldn't bet that way. And I would not bet against the return of inflation, uh, because uh, I think Milton Friedman had some things right. And when you you follow the growth of M2, and the rate that it's growing at, or use any other proxy you want. Go look at the stock market, where there is excess liquidity, and it is in the system. And we and the Fed is caught because we are fighting a war right now against the pandemic. And when that's the case, uh, everybody has to get in and support the war effort. Dan, so, forgive okay. me for jumping in, sir, yeah. if you can. Fantastic to catch up with you. Thank you for giving us some of your time. And don't be a stranger. Don't leave it so long next time. Dan Fuss there of Loomis Sales. Lori Kelvacine is at RBC Capital Markets, and they've got a really, really, really interesting exercise they go through every earnings season called transcript tagging. Lori, what's transcript tagging, and what have you learned? So basically, transcript tagging is we go through on my team all of the earnings call transcripts of S&P 500 companies. It's a pretty manual, uh, labor-intensive process, and we just frankly want to see what companies are talking about. Um, we try to gauge the tone. We look at what they're saying on things like cash What's deployment, the, the outlook. The tone, actually, this surprised me. 
wasn't as robust as I thought it would be. So we know that companies are coming in and beating left and right on 2020 numbers, but when they're talking about the forward outlook, there are really kind of two camps. There's one that's expressing some optimism over the vaccine rollout, and there's a second that's been really pushing the narrative of things are still uncertain. Um, so it, it wasn't as biased towards kind of that bullish look at the vaccine rollout as I would have thought. Talk to me about the performance post-earnings, Laurie. What's the takeaway? So this is something else that's really been interesting, you know, depending on what which day you update the data, but about half of companies that have posted results so far in this reporting season have gone down 1% or more in the one day trading session after the results. Now that stat's gotten a little bit better as we've gone through reporting season, but I think it's a testament to how high expectations were coming into this reporting season. So kind of this, you know, kind of one mediocre, yeah, maybe things will get better. We don't really know. That's not cutting it. And you're not seeing 2021 assumptions really go up in a meaningful way. I've been trying now, to work out, Laurie, yeah. just sorry to jump in. I've been trying to work out yeah. where the spot on the calendar is where a lot of this starts to matter just a little bit more, because I think some people are still quite forgiving of any downside surprises, whether it's the earnings or the negative economic yeah. data, because they're hoping, believing things get better in the future. What's the test date for you? The test date for me is going to be April. And the reason I say that is we're going to kind of get out of this year ahead outlook season. We'll start to hear the early reporters, you know, kind of talk about what the full year outlook really is. And also stocks have been marching along the 2009-2010 recovery path. And if you look back at that history, April is when you did get a pullback in the market of significant size. And we also have pointed out that about 10 months into recovery trades post-recession, you do typically get a big bout of consolidation. And we've seen this over the last three economic cycles. So, you know, that April timeframe is, is perhaps when we will finally get that pullback a lot of people have been looking for. Before that, Lori, next week in Washington, D.C., we're going to be getting those hearings about what happened with GameStop and AMC and some of these yeah. other uh, big share moves that we saw that really were attributed to retail but had a lot of other institutional players. How much does this affect your focus, which is small caps and the indexes that track these kinds of shares? I mean, how big of a concern is it that this type of activity could wildly distort both returns as well as money allocation uh, if it persists? So it's a great question. And I have, you know, kind of two critical thoughts here is one, I don't think retail investor participation and some of the less liquid names in small cap is necessarily a bad thing. Of course, we want it done in a way that's not bringing excessive risk upon those individuals. Um, but, you know, I think that the door has been open to some extent. So unless the regulators really kind of come in and close it down, and I don't think they will, you know, I think retail is probably here to stay and keep fishing in the small cap pond for a while. Second thing, though, I would tell you from an institutional community perspective, um, there was no one more unhappy about this Reddit issue to start the year than small cap value managers. And the reason why was that they did not own the kinds of names like GameStop that retail uh, was going after. And it created big performance holes in their benchmark. If you look at the last week of January, only 9% of small cap value managers beat their benchmark. They were not willing to go in and buy these stocks, but they were definitely curious to know if everyone else was. So this raises a really interesting question, Lori. If it's not going away, how do they play this? Do they start following Reddit and just going along with the crowd? Well, look, I think that we have just sort of an inherent problem in active management, which is that, you know, even value managers, everyone's kind of got these quality biases and has sort of veered over to the same side of the quality trade. And these kind of lower quality names um, have really kind of been ignored, you know, are sort of orphans in the market, so to speak. And I think we just need to recognize that this kind of situation where everybody in the institutional community is going to sit on the same side of the boat, it is just not going to be allowed to exist indefinitely. So they do need to fish more in that side of the pond, I think. 
Laurie, I've missed you. Yeah. How many months yeah. has it been? Yeah. It's been too I've long. I've really missed you. What, what, John, what she just said there <laughs> is extraordinarily important. I mean, this is the active... Pe- do you buy passive small cap? Totally. Or do you buy an active small cap? Can we do a quick shout out? Right, this is important. This Laurie, is important. it's been a long, long time. Can we do a shout out to Baby Emmett? How is Baby Emmett? Baby Emmett is great. He just got his first tooth and he's sleeping through the night. So Very he's cool. been winning. Dream did he, baby. Did he get any yes. bumble shares? Oh, my God. No. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my five-year-old did try to talk me into letting him trade some stocks. It was there a kind of fascinating oh conversation. You know. Laurie, I'm sure I'm not alone. <laughs> Wall Street's missed you. Welcome back. It's great yeah, to catch up. Laurie Calvacino of RBC Capital Markets. Just fantastic research. What we know for certain here at Team Surveillance, folks, on radio, on television, is a fancy guy in a fancy suit with a fancy bow tie will go get a second vaccination at 11 a.m. this morning. Fancy. The national disgrace that we have is the distribution pretty much is for the fancy people. Dwight Evans is living this in Philadelphia. He is a Democrat from Pennsylvania. We're thrilled he could join us this morning. You know, Congressman Evans, that it's a disgrace the way we've distributed the vaccine. The key word here is fast. What do you need from President Biden and Congress so that we fast distribute the vaccine to all who need it? There's no question that the program started started as a failure at this particular point. But I believe President Biden and we're working together to address those issues. There is no question as senior citizens, the essential workers, people of color, are having a very difficult time getting access to the program. And that is wrong. So we must change that. And I believe that we're moving in the right direction. And I think it's clear we ultimately, around April, should be in the right place. Tell us in the trenches of your legislation what we're doing about educating people and particularly people that don't have an acute science background. We seem to be so far behind. How do we educate and, again, educate fast? Well, there's no question that, you know, you know, it's no use I can talk about what has happened in the past, but we need to talk about the future. There's no question right around this particular month. It's been a year that we have faced this pandemic. And it's a global pandemic. And it's not that we created, it's a question of how it's been managed. So we can either point fingers or we can find a pathway to address it. I believe that the President of the United States, in conjunction with the House and the Senate, as a partnership, is attempting to address this pandemic. So, uh, Congressman, let's talk about the future and let's talk about the current stimulus plan. When you discuss with fellow Democrats what to approve, how big to go, how much are people talking about the political will to follow it up with an infrastructure spending bill, as Joe Biden will be talking about today in Washington, D.C.? Well, you go by the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He said a long time ago that we need to go big and we need to go bold. And right now is a very appropriate time because you look at the aspect of borrowing. Borrowing is very low, very appropriate. So those tools are available. So I believe that we have to use all the tools that are available. And I believe that people are ready. They are ready for a type of change. we got to build it back better. So we have to crush the virus, crush that first and foremost. Secondly, make the necessary strategic event. Reopen our schools, reinvest in our infrastructure, 
work with our small businesses. These are all the things that we have to do. So it's not easy, but we can do it. Well, but but you believe that, and a lot of people do believe that, a part of the Democratic Party. But even among the Democrats, there is some disagreement about how big to go and how much to follow this up with. And the idea that Republicans are getting a little bit more concerned about the debt pile. I mean, how concerned are you that if you pass a big and bold stimulus package right now, it will withdraw any political support for getting that infrastructure spending done that you're saying is crucial? Well, I think it's important to understand that in the House, we just had a hearing uh, in, in the uh, Ways and Means Committee, and the chairman of the committee is very confident in terms of where we are. We understand the concerns that people have, but we realize this is something we can do. We cannot afford not to do it, so we have to take that action. I believe that we're in the majority in the Senate, and with the House working together, I think that you will see a new, different day. So I'm very optimistic that we can achieve this. Mm -hmm. Dwight Evans, tell us the, the, the forward motion of the Congressional Black Caucus. It has been a four-year challenge without question. I think anybody of any political persuasion can agree on that. Tell us about the new effort by a Congressional Black Caucus in Congress. Well, you know, um, Joyce Beatty from Ohio is the new chairperson. As a matter of fact, she's on the Financial Service Committee. I work very closely with being on the Ways and Means Committee. So I share with you with her leadership taking place of Karen Bass from California that she will not miss a step. You have some very good new members, new blood, new energy, who are ready to take this challenge on. So in spite of what a lot of people said, I believe that the Congressional Black Caucus is ready for this challenge. Congressman, we would love to have you back soon. Please stay close. Don't be a stranger to this program. <laughs> Congressman Dwight Evans there. Wank in. Diane Smart joins from Grant Thornton. Just wonderful about calibrating the pulse of that equation, y equals c plus i plus g plus nx. Diane Smart, right now the mystery to me is a persistent 6%, 5% GDP, and we get out into Q1, maybe into Q2, and then there's a mystery. What is your clarity on Q3 and Q4 of this year? Well, certainly the hope is that we see this unleashed pent-up demand lift us even higher and get to the end of the year. Ours is a little bit more muted because the multipliers we think are more muted on services coming back than they are on goods coming back. This is a very unique recession where you do unleash pent-up demand, but how many times do you eat up out in a day? How many haircuts do you get to make up for what we lost? So it's a different kind of unleashed pent-up demand, but we could easily see the strongest year since 1984. That is important. Um, as we go into 2022, what's also important is how do we manage the virus? I mean, we're talking about not eradicating the virus, but managing it so that it's not a significant part of our everyday lives. But that process of mm -hmm. going from eradicating herd immunity, just flipping a switch to managing the virus is a very different economic equation right. as well in terms of how fast we can ramp up all showing up at big theaters and sporting events and in crowds 
crowds and congregating in the way right. many of us would like to. Diane Swank, we spoke with Heidi Shearholz out of your University of Michigan uh, the other day. She is expert, expert, expert on the dearth of jobs, that job gap that we have. With the Swank economy, do we close that job gap? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things we're really worried about it, and Heidi is as well, she's great at this, is the dichotomy between high wage jobs have come back. And in fact, in some sectors, they're reporting labor market shortages. Of course, we all know that anyone doing anything with their house right now cannot find a skilled carpenter. But beyond that, you've got in the low wage sector jobs that are being replaced by automation and digitation. Even thinking about um, things like the Peloton and doing fitness in home, that allows one person to personally train a lot of people reduces the costs of some of these inflation fears I think are overstated, but it also reduces some jobs that might be coming back otherwise. Also cashiers, anything that can be automated in terms of getting out of a store, not having that extra touch in a world where you manage the virus rather than just contain it. All of those things mean it's going to be even harder for some of these workers that have been displaced to come back without reskilling. And that's before we get to the lost educational component of we've now got many low-wage households suffering. Not only are math scores suffering, which need in-person care in elementary schools, but low-wage households suffering dropouts, not getting access to online education. And it really is exacerbating inequalities and diminishing that labor pool going forward. Let's pick up on that word inequality. They're the structural issues. Let's talk about some of the cyclical slack. This Fed has been conditioned to understand now Chairman Powell, Chair Yellen, now Secretary Yellen, they need to run this a whole lot longer to really reduce and eradicate any cyclical slack that is left. They learned that in the last cycle. They're applying that conditioning to this cycle. And Dan, I wonder how difficult this is going to be to calibrate, because if the Federal Reserve is committed to doing that, then as a market participant, I'm committed to allocating to risk assets as well. So how on earth do you close that gap if monetary policy is one of the tools you're using to do it? Yeah, it's really monetary policy is such a crude tool on this. And I think fiscal policy is so much better at removing the hurdles to inequality. We're going to need summer schools to make up for some of this inequality. We're going to need to re-engage students that have dropped out of college twice the pace they've dropped out in households earning less than $75,000 a year. So all of that requires more fiscal policy than monetary policy. And monetary policy kind of running that, you know, sort of, and you allude to it, yes, low rates for a long time. If you overshoot on what you thought was full employment and Powell has really embraced this idea to run the economy hot, to bring in more of those workers that are now most damaged, narrow that gap between the black unemployment rate and the white unemployment rate in particular, looking at different um, employment to population ratios, trying to think of this much more nuanced um, in terms of what is full employment. Well, that's only one tool, but that's a really crude tool. And we also know the New York Fed has done a study that in fact, you know, running the the economy hot with low rates also exacerbates inequality in wealth. And that's something that we have to deal with as well. So I think that's the hard part. Getting the economy hot is also still an unknown. All these people worried about inflation out there. It We could see a flare of inflation, but to have the kind of wage push inflation we saw, say, in the 1970s, overlaid with the OPEC um, inflation we saw in the 1970s, a stagflation. Back then, research suggests that 80% of wages in the U.S. economy were tied to a cost of living 
increase. That was well and beyond any union contracts out there. I remember my dad would come home with his extra COLA increase as a GM executive back in the late 70s and be excited that he got that extra bonus in addition to his raises he was getting. That's not the world we live in today. And I think people, this, the context of inflation is very different than it once was. Which brings in the $15 minimum wage debate, which is being uh, had in Washington, D.C., right? whether or not to include that in the stimulus plan. A lot of people saying, just take it out. It's a hot potato. The CBO, uh, which is a nonpartisan group that took a look at this, found that it would lead to fewer jobs, but it would reduce the amount of poverty in the economy. What's your view? I mean, do you think that it would help generate the kind of income growth, boost to inflation, boost to economic prosperity to raise this? Or would it actually harm it? Well, it really is. This is a much more nuanced debate. And one of the things I, I do think the evidence on minimum wage has really shifted a lot of economists views on it. It didn't destroy as many jobs over that period of time. It's almost a one for one, not quite a, a million people taken out of poverty, a million and a half jobs lost. If some of those jobs were no longer people working two jobs, that's a good thing. But the more nuanced view of it that I think is really important is places where, you know, you're trying to bring up small companies back online, small business back online, while large chain is already moving to $15 an hour, they're effectively accelerating the consolidation and diminishing the dynamism of the U.S. economy and making it very hard for these smaller restaurants, smaller businesses, smaller retailers to compete. And although I embrace the minimum wage and think that it can lift the fortunes of many, and it is a phased in process, I think we need to think of it as much more nuanced of how do we help those companies that have a harder time coming back online after being just hammered by the pandemic. So in the context of where we're at, I do think it's important to talk about a minimum wage, but I also think you need to think about what kind of consolidation, what are small businesses going to need to do to be able to embrace that minimum wage in a way that's most productive for the U.S. economy. And that's much harder. We know that large chains, large fast food restaurants in particular, pass along the increases of the minimum wage, not in job cuts, but in higher prices. It's a step function. It's not something that we can't absorb. But I think we need to think about how do smaller companies that want to come back online deal with this in the areas where the minimum wage is the lowest. So Diane, given how nuanced this is and how disproportionately the big companies and the small companies have been affected uh, by the current economic backdrop, what are you proposing? I mean, do you see a, a place for universal income? What is the sort of transmission mechanism to even out the playing field? Well, I think one of the transmission mechanisms we've already talked about, you know, increased cashier jobs are not going to be as necessary. We've seen restaurants move online. A lot of ordering is going to be done before you even show up at the restaurant, you could imagine now. So there's going to be reduced need for wait staff in different ways. And the wait staff is going to provide different kinds of um, roles than they did pre-pandemic. So there's that issue out there. And I think one of the things we still need to get to, and it gets to investment in infrastructure, but it's restorative policies, everything from year-round schooling to catch up on what we've lost. We're going to need retraining programs. We're going to need training programs to allow people to move up in wage group. What we've seen in the past is middle wage earners have lost their jobs and then taken a low wage job. We've seen low wage job workers take another low wage job when they lost their job. Now we're talking about reducing the number of low wage jobs out there. And that's something that I think we have to offset with fiscal policy that includes training, that includes more investment in community colleges 
all of those kinds of things that allows people to make this transition to a higher wage and more productive wage in a world that's going to be more technologically savvy. We've been at pandemic has been an accelerant in our embrace of technology. We've learned to use things that were in existence that we didn't even, my husband now knows how to use the universal remote. That's a big wow. step of productivity growth in my family. <laughs> that's, a a big, that's a really big step. It accel- accelerated that shift. But you know, these are things it's accelerated that shift, but also in accelerating that shift, it accelerated, you know, we now have gig workers delivering stuff to us. That's a very different kind of job yeah. than some of these low workers had that's got even less um, security on it. So I think we really need to be thinking holistically, and it's going to require fiscal policy as well. Diane Swank, a grand daughter. Quite simply, amazing. one of the best. Thank you. Michael Nathanson, Moffat Nathanson, Senior Research Analyst on what we have wrought, what we've learned through the pandemic. Michael, you've been what I'm going to call constructive on Disney, but you were not an uber bull. What surprised you about the Disney Plus? What was the, the lessons learned from Disney Plus? Well, I'll tell you, what lessons learned from Disney Plus have been the adoption has been much stronger in the first year than we ever imagined. And I remember a couple of years ago fighting with clients about how big it could be, but it's literally been double or triple what we thought it was, you know, two years ago, right? And, and, and it could have been the pandemic, but also could be just great execution on Disney. And, you know, I give the company a ton of credit because they took this challenge on, you know, head on and, and they've executed so well against it. So there's a question here of whether there's a broader lesson that perhaps there's more room to grow and there are more subscription streams uh, that consumers are willing to have if we see the same kind of growth at Netflix that we now see at Disney Plus and then some. Is there some takeaway, some broader takeaway about the future of streaming and the potential profitability there that's making you reassess your calls? Well, that's it's, it's a good question. We're trying to, to figure out how much of the adoption the past year has been due to the pandemic. You know, I listened to you guys, and I realized that Tom has been stuck at home so often. And, and, and the question is, when we start opening up uh, back to normal, will there be a bit of a fade on, on streaming adoption? But with that said, I think what we're seeing, and this is a question you guys always ask me, is you're seeing cord cutting you know, r- remain really problematic. Consumers are finding surplus from cord cutting, and they're taking that surplus and they're spending it on streaming services. And that's going to continue for a long time. Um, I think, if anything, the rethought for us, and this has been true for our Netflix work as well, has been the adoption overseas, internationally, of streaming. You know, Historically, there's not been a huge market in, for television outside the U.S., pay TV, but this has changed things, and there's more adoption overseas than we ever thought. Michael, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to pick up on one point you were talking about, this idea of how much this is just due to the pandemic and how much this has longer lasting uh, trend implications. What are the streaming services replacing, if not for the cable cord that would have been there, pandemic or not? Well, Lisa, you know, if you look at total consumer spending on entertainment, clearly not going to theaters is is a major cost savings. Not, not buying packaged media, what's left of it, maybe even not going to entertainment like sports or theme parks, right? So if you look at consumer spending, you know, the, the shutdown of options out of the home has created yeah. a huge surplus for consumers. 
Michael, we didn't have you on because we want to talk to you about Cellside. The fact is Taylor Riggs is buried in a Ph.D. course in M&A. And she said, right. get Nathanson on so you can give me an A+. Let's do it, Michael. Right, right now, okay. her exercise is who Apple should buy. Can yeah. Apple buy Netflix? Is that Why would Apple, with that cash flow, want to buy Netflix? Apple should not buy Netflix because Netflix has already achieved the dream. Apple should buy HBO and Warner, you know, and Warner Brothers out of AT and T. That because that dream has not been realized. You basically need Apple's balance sheet, you need Apple's Apple's distribution globally, right? So you can take an asset like HBO Max and Warner Brothers and turbocharge it, and rather than pay Netflix that upside, you can create it yourself. And that's what I would do if I was Apple. Culturally, can they do it? As you know, Michael, this is critical. See Fox, Disney. Culturally, yeah. could Apple deal with the Hollywood of Warner HBO? Well, Tom's a great question. So far, it's Amazon not my question. Netflix, it's Taylor Riggs. Continue. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> it's a, so Taylor, the so far the two two of the three winners in streaming have built it themselves, right? There's been no Hollywood acquisition. It's self-built. The, the, the issue that Apple faces is that they're, they're lagging. They really are. We, our survey work shows them to be really in sixth or seventh place right now. So they need to do something to, to get in the game. And I think they don't have the time to, to build you have yeah. to buy. That's what I would think. Taylor uh, writes in to say thank you very much uh, for that <laughs> advice, and she does plan to get an A+. There is a question, though, with the cash piles and some of big tech's balance sheet and the idea that they all want to get into entertainment, especially the apples of the world. And now, of course, Amazon's already been in it and has a big footprint. At what point does M&A raise concerns from an antitrust standpoint in Washington, D.C., given the current administration? That's a good question. I don't think we will see any of our tech companies. We cover Facebook and Google or Alphabet buying um, companies that are close to their core business. I think if Apple buys a video company or Amazon does, it'd be just to to compete more broadly in video and maybe drive, again, consumer surplus by creating better better products. So that doesn't worry me as much as, you know, Google buying Twitter, which won't happen, or Facebook buying Pinterest, which won't happen, right? So I, I think they really need to stay out of their lanes to, to, to do M&A at this point. Michael Nathanson, brilliant. Really, really appreciate it. It's Taylor Riggs sends her loving as well. Michael Nathanson <laughs> Come back with sometime. Moffitt Nathanson. Some real smart discussion there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.